It's a blessing to be with y'all. Uh, I would love to invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 39. We're going to read to chapter 12, verse, all the way to verse 3. It seems like a lot because it's two different chapters, but it's all kind of compacted together. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 39, and we'll go to chapter 12, verse 3. If you could, if you're physically able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word tonight? It's been encouraging to hear that you've been talking through the reality of what it means to be strangers and exiles. And tonight, we're going to continue that conversation about being strangers and exiles, but what it means to literally live as such, but by faith. And then we're going to walk through the nuances of what that means by faith. And so let me read the word of God, and then we will pray, and then we will dive into the word this evening. And the word of God says, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, as we think through what it looks like to be strangers and exiles, Lord, that means that we are to be distinct in the way that we think, the way that we talk, the way that we move through life than the rest of the world. We who have trusted Jesus have a dual citizenship. We're citizens of the kingdom of God, but yet we live in the broken city of man. And Father, I pray that you would encourage us this evening that as we hear from your word, that we hear directly from you. Allow me to not do or say anything that distracts from you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would allow us to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So as we're talking about being strangers and exiles who live by faith, there's an acronym that I want to unpack for our time together, and the acronym is around the word faith. And the main point, I think, of this passage is that living by faith calls Jesus' followers to do these five things. Number one, finish our race. We're called to finish our race. Secondly, appreciate our faith. In addition to finishing our race, appreciate our faith. The third is remember that we are interlocked with other saints. We're interlocked with other saints. And we are to throw away the sins and weights. Throw away the sins and weights. And then finally, hang on until we see Jesus' face. Hang on until we see Jesus' face. Crazy thing about it is I didn't realize that rhymed until like later on. I was like, oh, snap, look at that. It's race, faith, saints, weights, face. Okay, we out here making albums. All right, so if you've never rapped in your life, just memorize that main point, live it, and then spit it, you know? Like you at the lunch table, hey, man, live by faith. Finish our race, right? There you go. All right, so I'll let you be creative with how you want to take that. But I do want to just engage the reality of this text and what it means. So the first thing I want to talk about tonight is what it means to finish our race. Verse 39 says, and all these. Now, let me just stop right there and pause for station identification. What does it mean, and all these? Well, the author of Hebrews, who we are not sure the author is, the reality of what they are writing is to encourage Christians to continue to process and stay faithful and enduring no matter what type of temptation to stop following Christ, no matter what temptation that would say it's taking their joy out of following Christ. 
And the author actually in chapter 11 actually highlights what we call the hall of faith. But it's men and women. So it's both men and women who followed God by faith, even though they made all kinds of sinful mistakes. And the reality of their mistakes actually is something that can comfort us because it gives us space as human beings to know that being a Christian does not mean that you are perfect in all of your decision-making, perfect in every word that you say, everything you throw on the gram, everything you tweet out. You're not perfect in all those things. The internal war that you may have when your parents or your guardians are telling you to do something that you just don't want to do. Stop playing Fortnite. No, right? Like, like all these things. Well, sometimes my wife has to tell me that, and I say no, right? So like there's that tension that even I wrestle with when it comes to not making the best decisions or most God-glorifying decision. There's space for normal human beings who were following Jesus to recognize we're not perfect. And that's exactly what the Hall of Faith shows us. All of these are the Old Testament saints, that their testimonies should encourage us that if they finish their race, you and I should be able to finish ours as well. So I even think about some of the names, like in verse 7 of chapter 11, Noah. Noah was used by God. God actually repopulated the earth through the lineage of Noah, his wife, and obviously their sons and their sons' wives. And the reality of him being preserved by God is because he was a man of obedience. But then we recognize that as soon as the, the water subsided from the global flood and we see that Noah stepped out of the ark, well, he plants a vineyard and Noah got drunk. And some crazy things went down when Noah got drunk. So we recognize that man, even though he was a man of obedience, there was a moment of weakness. He indulged in something, and there were consequences from that moment of indulgement. But Noah is mentioned in the hall of faith, which means even though he made a mistake, and we see it in Scripture, very, uh, you know, many millennia later, he finished his race. We also look at Abraham. Abraham literally listened to his wife when he got frustrated that God was not giving them the promised child. And his wife basically said, go sleep with my maid and maybe that's how you will have the promised seed because obviously I can't give you a child. And rather than saying, no, I'm going to stay faithful to the word of God, he was like, all right, cool. So he went and did it. And there are consequences to this day based on that poor decision that he made. He, he, he relapsed in by, by, by not living by faith and believing that although the promise was not received yet for him and Sarah to have the promised seed, that in a moment of weakness, in a moment of doubt, in a moment of listening to poor counsel, he made the conscious decision to go in a different direction to try to make it happen on his own. But he finished his race. We also see Moses. Obviously, people esteem Moses, a prophet of God. Moses actually committed murder as well. Moses had an anger problem. He got so irritated at the griping and complaining of the children of Israel, and I can't even be mad at Moses, so I'm not throwing shade at him because I'm frustrated at the griping and complaining of my own kids. That's just three, not millions of people griping and complaining at me. And he got angry, struck a rock, and God was like, boy, I done told you, you do that, you ain't going to the promised land. And he didn't go to the promised land. But the amazing thing is that because of his trust in God, he finished his race, and he dwells in the city of God. We also see about Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. That right there needs no unpacking. We understand that she would give her body, surrendering her body to countless of people on a regular basis, but yet she's mentioned that she did not perish with the ones who were disobedient because by faith she, be, she began to pronounce and then she acted in faith in step with the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh. She's actually mentioned in the lineage of Jesus. See, her past is one that people even in our day know carry guilt and shame, but yet the reality of God redeeming her story 
is something that can still take place today. She finished her race. Gideon, terrified. Angel of the Lord comes up to him and says, mighty man of valor. And that was a joke. Like literally, that was God kind of like throwing shade. Like, you a little weak dude and I'm going to call you a mighty man of valor. Gideon was like, mighty man of valor, where? Like, that ain't me. I'm over here shaking in my boots. Like, man, I'm scared to fight. I'm scared of my shadow, right? And God raised him up and used him mightily for the freedom of his people. He finished his race. David, man, we know about David. We hear about David and Goliath. We hear about David evading Saul, forgiving Saul. But one aspect about David's story is that he conspired to murder to cover up getting another man's wife pregnant. And he sat in that unconfessed sin for at least nine months and just held it in and acted like nobody knew anything. He had this woman who he committed adultery with had her husband killed on purpose to cover up his sin. And he did not forth willingly come out and confess it. God had to send somebody to uncover David's sin because David was holding on to the cover and not wanting to let go. He wanted to keep it concealed. And even though God forgave there were still consequences in David's life that remain. Even though God forgave Noah, even though God forgave all of these human beings that are mentioned in the hall of faith, we recognize that forgiveness is a reality that God gives when we confess. He freely forgives us when we go directly to him and ask for forgiveness. But the reality that you and I have to understand is that sometimes there are consequences that remain even though we are still forgiven by God. And the reason we have to recognize that is because after the weekend is over and you pray prayers of forgiveness and you maybe embrace Christ by faith and you recognize that you're free from the guilt and shame of all the brokenness of your life before you knew Christ, those consequences, when they become and they hit you Monday morning, when they hit you a month from now, when they hit you six years from now, you've got to now root yourself so deeply in the word of God and in the community of saints that you don't start buying into the lie of the enemy, God no longer forgives me, or God never forgave me. But you would know, no, these are consequences for my sinful actions that I still need to engage with, but God still forgives me. See, they finished their race, which means you and I can finish our race too. What's amazing is that we actually have a benefit that we're gonna talk about in a moment that they did not have. So when he says that all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, what we can recognize is that when we read Scripture, this is why we have to read the Word of God. There are stories in Scripture that show human beings that didn't have it all together. So often we create these romantic characters of the Bible in our mind as if David never did anything wrong, as if Rahab didn't have a checkered past, as if Noah was perfect in all of his ways, as if Moses never had a character flaw. Like when you look in the Word of God, God has preserved the humanity of all these people to show us they they are not the models that we should follow. Rather, Christ is because they all needed to put their trust in God who would bring Christ to wash away their sins and ours as well. That's the beauty of it. God is faithful to forgive us from our sins when we humble ourselves and ask him. When we take ownership and say, I did this. I can't blame society. I can't blame my parents. I can't blame my siblings. I can't blame my friends or my lack of friends. I can't blame the person trolling me or bullying me. I took ownership for these things that I chose to do. And God, I was wrong. And I ask you and you alone to forgive me. Because ultimately, every act of sin is against you. So forgive me. And the Bible tells us God will forgive us when we confess our sins. He is faithful 
meaning regular, and he is just, which means the punishment that would have been given to us was actually absorbed by somebody instead of us in our place. So we are human beings who are living in the tension of being a citizen of heaven, but living on earth. But we can finish our race. So what we have to do is, okay, how, what are the practical ways that I can finish my race? Okay, appreciate your faith. That's why the author says in, in verse 39, they did not receive what was promised. The Old Testament saints during their lives had no reference of the finished work of Jesus Christ. They had no idea that God was going to pour all his wrath out on his very own son, who was fully God, that would add to his full deity, full humanity, live a perfect life that nobody in Hebrews 11 and nobody here could ever live. Jesus Christ lived that perfect life. And he volunteered to absorb the punishment in full for the sins that you and I deserve to receive from God throughout all of eternity. And Jesus soaked it up in a matter of hours. See, they knew by faith God was going to deal with their sin somehow. They just didn't have all the details. We have all the details. So they were looking forward to when God would deal with their sin. We have to look back. And the same perspective leads us to the same central focal point, and that is Jesus' work on the cross. See, Paul tells us in Romans that God actually did something with all the sin debt of all the Old Testament saints prior to Jesus' work on the cross. He gave them something that was called forbearance. Can you say forbearance? forbearance? Forbearance is a big word that basically means God says, I will come collecting the debt that you racked up at a later date. I'm going to give you a grace period where you don't have to give payment in full now, but payment in full is going to come at a later date, but I'll set that later date. It kind of reminds me of me and my student loans. Now, I know that college may be a semester away for some of us. College may be a reality for some of us. College may be six, seven years away from some of us, and some of us are six, seven years removed from college, but we're still paying off them student loans from those days in college. See, there's this beautiful truth that I discovered is that after I finished my undergraduate degree and started my master's degree, there was this term that my student loan agency came to me and gave to me, and it was called forbearance, which means, oh, you have a debt. You owe us X amount of dollars that you took out, signed for, and said you would pay back at a future date, and normally we would come to collect after graduation. There's a six-month period that we will now contact you, but since you are still pursuing your education... We will put you in a state of forbearance, which means the debt is still there. But we will not require payment until a future date that we will determine. And so the reality of what God is saying is that Old Testament saints, trust me. Engage with me. Follow the word that I give you for what you have in the moment. But there's still a debt. Your debt is not washed away. The debt will be dealt with. I will forbear with you until the day of reconciliation when I will come for payment for the debt. Jesus stepped into that day that was predetermined by God. And on that cross, he didn't just take the debt of the saints of the Old Testament. He took the, the debt of the saints here right now that I'm testifying to. And he put all of it on Christ. And Christ shed his blood in order to absorb and pay off in totality the debt of every citizen in the kingdom of God. That's the beauty of God. So what Jesus did is that he is the one that we look back to to reflect on the fact that my sin debt has been taken care of by Jesus. He took the full weight of my debt. I have the completed story. 
that I can go and share with others. They don't have to be clueless about the reality of God dealing with debt of our sin. We can clue them into the full story because we have it right here in Scripture. That's why when the author says, although they are commended through their faith with what limited information they had from the revelation of God's Scripture, they did not receive what was promised. We, who are followers of Jesus, we have received in fullness what is promised. That is that our debt is washed away. So that right there should lead us to appreciate the faith that we have in Christ. But it also leads us to remember that we are now interlocked with other saints. With other saints from every era of human history before us, and if the Lord continues to keep human history going forward after, then we are collectively a part of that body that God has redeemed for himself. In verse 40, the author says, Since God provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And what the author is saying is that God's purpose is that all of his people will enjoy the fullness of the promise together. That the reception of our glorified bodies when we cross over to the other side of eternity, that that is when we will receive the full reward of the salvation that God has given to us. That's something that we will experience in the moment together. You know, it's like a 4x4 relay team. I remember this summer we're going to watch the Olympics. And the four by fours, when the U.S. track team, both men and women, take place. I love watching four by fours. The amazing thing about a four by four is you literally have four teammates that are running in one race. So you have one who was the starter, and they, with the firing of the gun, boom, they're the one that starts the first leg of the race. And as they begin to press through and they get to the point where they and their next person that they're going to hand off to, that next person begins the momentum, and they have the baton passing. If you drop the baton, you become disqualified. All that hard work, all the training, all the sacrifice, everything, it's, it's for naught. It's for nothing. You are disqualified. And so the second person successfully grabs the baton, and then they run as fast as they can until they meet their next teammate, who is number three, that is jogging, looking, jogging, and they have practiced this so much that there is a rhythm where they pass and they hand off the baton. Now the third person is running, and then they get to the fourth person, which is known as the anchor of the team. And this person is ready to get the baton. They grab the baton, and it is their goal to run as fast as humanly possible to be the first one to cross the finish line. And when that team that gets the gold crosses the finish line, there is a celebration. Even though the first person had technically finished their race, even though the second and third teammates had finished their race, when the fourth one carrying the baton crossed the finish line and won the gold as a team, they all win the gold medal together. And they receive their reward at the same time as the medal ceremony. So they will dress in their country's garb. They will stand on the podium together. They receive their reward together. It doesn't matter who ran first, second, third, or fourth in that moment. Collectively, they receive the reward together. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying. The Old Testament saints' lives matter. The New Testament saints' lives matter. Our lives matter because they are cheering us on. They are saying, here is the baton of the gospel. It's inclusive of discipleship. Don't drop this. Don't be disqualified. Finish the race. Finish strong. And all of your teammates in the city of God are cheering us on collectively. That's Noah. That's Rahab. That's Sarah. That's David. That's Moses. Because they know that it's not until Jesus consummates his kingdom that all of us receive our medals together at the same time. We're interlocked. We're together. 
the generations, the genders, the ethnicities, the languages, the social classes, everyone that Christ has redeemed with his blood, we will receive the reward together. Your life counts. This is why Satan wants you to think you don't matter. This is why Satan wants you to believe the lies that you're not loved, that nobody cares, nobody's thinking about you, nobody's checking up on you, nobody's asking the questions. This is why he wants you to believe nobody understands you, nobody gets you, nobody's experienced what you've experienced. He wants you to think that you're so isolated and unique and so much of an enigma that nobody can figure out that your life doesn't matter, that your life doesn't count. But I'm here to tell you that when you identify yourself with Christ, the reality is your life does matter because you are a representation armed with the flashlight of the word of God to go into your home, your school, your place of work, the bus stop, armed in those spaces of darkness with the light of God's word to show people the love of God that you have experienced. Your life matters. The greatest thing the enemy can do is try to get you paralyzed and thinking of thoughts of distraction that you don't matter, that you don't count, that nobody cares. And my brothers and sisters, that's not true. That's not true. Christ thought of us collectively when he agreed to endure all that was necessary to save you and I. God knows the brokenness of your story. His fingerprints have been all a part of your life even before you knew him. God has protected you. God did not let you die in sin. God did not let you elect to take that overdose or to cut yourself the right way that would take you off this planet. God protected you from the ones that wanted to kill you. God protected you even when you wanted to kill you. God protected you and would not let you die in your sins before hearing the glorious truth of the gospel of Jesus, that you would put your hope and trust in him. Your life matters. Satan doesn't want you to believe that. But the author of Hebrews is giving you truth that heaven is cheering us on, that they cannot enter into that final reward without you without me. So we are interconnected with other saints. So that then should now motivate us as we appreciate our faith, as we recognize that we are interconnected with other saints, now we should receive the motivation to throw away our sins and weights. The author says, lay aside, lay aside every weight. Notice that the weights are given distinction from sin. So the author starts with the weights that we actually bring upon ourselves that weigh us down, that may, are, that may not be technically sins, but they're the things that take our energy that are not best for us in flourishing in our relationship with Jesus and each other. These weights are things that we hold on to. For the audience that the author of Hebrews was writing to, they were probably thinking that they had to keep the Old Testament law. So they were trying to say, well, this, this, this life of grace is too easy, so I need to take the law back up and put this yoke of slavery to the law back on me so that I could be saved. And what the author was saying is, no, you've been saved by grace, not the law. Don't bring the weightiness of the law back on you. It's going to take your energy from actually living in the joy of grace that Christ has given you. So the question is not, well, is this technically a sin or not? But rather the better question for us that are trying to finish our race is, you know what? Is this going to weigh me down and zap my energy? That's the greater question. When we look at the Olympic marathon runners, they don't run with heavy jeans on. They don't have hoodies on when they run. 
They don't run in Timberland boots or lug boots. They don't run with even flip-flops on. They don't run with backpacks and ankle weights on. No, they run with the lightest material that they can have. And they run for the long haul because they know that if they put on extra weight, it's going to zap their energy and they're not going to compete with the full effectiveness that they have been training for. For us, we may think through, what are the things that are weighing us down? Is it an inappropriate relationship? Is it too much time on our video games? Is it being on our cell phones for far too long? What are the things that are not sin, but they're weighing us down? What are the things that we're reading or feasting our thought life on, our playlist? Is it leading us to Christ or is it leading us further away from Christ? These are the things that even I got to ask in my own life. So this idea of things weighing us down and zapping our energy, these are the things that keep us from walking effectively in obedience to Christ. And often they take away our desire to even engage in discipleship or sharing the gospel. It takes away our joy from even participating in coming together with other saints. I often think about the time when I was wrestling. And I remember I had won the state tournament the year before, and I was ranked first to win it again. That morning, normally, I didn't eat a heavy breakfast before I wrestled because at that time, according to my age group, I wrestled lightest weight class. And because I was ranked first, I was at the top of the bracket, which means I was the first match on the mat for the day. And for whatever reason, I was hungry, and I made a poor decision that morning to eat three pancakes, eggs, bacon, milk. That's not the best thing when you know that you've got to wrestle in less than an hour. And so I ate those pancakes, and they, they were good. They were good going down. And about 45 minutes later, they just settled heavy in my stomach like 6,000 pounds of bricks just right here, and it wasn't going nowhere. And I was like, oh, no. And my dad said, okay, you got to get ready. Tournament starts, 15 minutes. And I'm sitting there like, this is not good. So I laid down, began to have sweat aligning on the top of my forehead and my hairline. And I was nervous. And my dad said, we need to go. We're in a big auditorium that sits at least three, 4,000 people. And he's like, we need to go down to the actual comp competitor's floor, go through security. And I'm like, dad, I feel like I'm gonna throw up. And he was like, well, hurry up and throw up. We gotta go. And I'm like, well, thanks for your sympathy and support. I really appreciate it, dad. So he's like, let's go, man. If you gotta throw up, throw up. And I'm like, all right, all right. So I was like, no, I feel okay. All right, I'm gonna press on, I'm gonna go through. So I end up wrestling my first match. Stomach just not feeling well, but I'm able to compete. I've wrestled this kid for, man, a few years now, pin him with no problem every time I wrestle him. I was struggling so much in that match, I only won by a score of two to zero. Everyone was like, what's wrong with you? This is the easiest, weakest kid in the bracket. You should have pinned him and been on your day. Like, what is going on? I'm like, I don't feel good. So I went to go lay down and I took a nap. I knew I had about two hours before I would wrestle again. So I slept for about an hour. My dad woke me up and said, hey, you got about an hour left. There's about 20 matches until it gets to your number again. Got to get ready to go down there in a little bit. And I'm like, dad, I think this is it. I got to throw up. And he's like, okay, then go throw up. And I'm like, let's go. And I'm like, all right. So I end up, just to be honest with you, um, whenever I throw up, it's, it's an event, right? It's an event. <laughs> like my wife, God bless her. She's, she's brought three beautiful children into this world. And every time that she was pregnant, her first trimester, meaning the first three months, she literally threw up every morning, every day. And literally when her second trimester began, to the day morning sickness went away with all three pregnancies. So she would like throw up and be like, hmm, all right, let's go. And I'm like, let's go. You just threw up. When I throw up, my soul leaves my body. Like, I brace myself as if it's like, you know, a tornado and an earthquake happening at the same time. And I'm just like, Hah! right? Like, I'm literally hollering at hell and, de and demons and Satan. And I'm like, Hah! right? Like, everything. And my soul leaves my body like, oh, right? Like, so when I throw up, like, I literally throw everything in my life out of my body in that moment. 
I don't recuperate that well. It takes me at least a day because after I throw up, I just want to lay under a blanket, watch movies on Netflix, and just live my best life, right? Like, have I want to eat as peppermints, and that's it. Like, that's all I want for the next 24 hours. Well, when you're in the state tournament and you're trying to defend your title, you don't have such luxuries. And so uh, I, 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 I entered into the restroom. My soul, along with all of my breakfast, left my body. My soul was rejoined, and my dad said, let's go. And I'm like, come on. So I addressed him. It's a young man that had beat me about three weeks prior. We were looking forward to this rematch. I felt that I was going to win had not I had pancakes. He ended up beating me 13-2 to two that day. I didn't win the state title that day. Ended up taking third, but I looked back at that day, and I just said, now, what went wrong? Ah, pancakes. <laughs> pancakes. Was it a sin? No, it wasn't gluttony. I, I was eating. They were like little, little silver dollar joints when I was little. So it wasn't gluttony. It wasn't a sin. But was it the best thing for me when I'm about to go compete? No. That's what he's saying. It's not the sin. He's going to talk to the sin next. What the author is saying is, hey, it's those things that make you not want to read the word of God. It's those things that make you spiritually sluggish and you don't want to pray. You don't, it's going to things that's going to make you so weak that when temptation and sin comes, it hooks itself to you. You get trapped very easily because you don't have the spiritual strength and stamina to fight back. So he says, throw away the weights and the sin which clings so closely. Throw all the sins away. If you have a critical heart, unforgiveness, bitterness, you stop trusting in God. Placing other people as the God in your life or placing yourself as the idol of your heart. Pride, demanding your own way, thinking that your talents are here for you to, for you to serve your talents rather than the God who gave you your talents. Like, like these sinful things that take you away from loving God, they take your affections for God away from you and you put them on false gods that will never love you back. The author of Hebrews is saying, Throw those things away. Throw away every idol that is taking your love from God. And when we do this, when we appreciate our faith, when we realize that we are interconnected with all other saints and we throw away the sins and weights, God is telling us, hold on. Hold on until you see Jesus. The author says, let us run with endurance, which is a steady determination to keep going, to finish. It's not a suggestion. The scripture is commanding that we keep on running. When we don't feel like it, we keep on obeying and following Jesus. It's not popular, when it's not even our first choice, when it's uncomfortable, when it doesn't give us a return of pleasure, we keep on running after Jesus. How do we stay encouraged? We find strength to keep on going in the midst of tribulation. Even when we're running at length, they say there's this thing called the second wind which is like a burst of energy that when you're tired, that you get, and it allows you to press on and keep on until the race is done. Well, the reality is, it's not a second wind for us spiritually. It's the Holy Spirit who gives us the strength and the vitality to keep on obeying Christ, keep on believing the gospel, keep on making disciples, keep on engaging with the local church, keep on loving the saints, keep on forgiving the ones who hurt you, keep on confessing your sins, keep on throwing away the weights that are weighing you down so that you can finish well. And we have to look. We have to look at the finish line. The reality of the finish line 
I ain't gonna lie, that was probably one of the most awkward claps in the world. <laughs> We're just gonna speak through it in that moment. You, you can't just play that kind of stuff. I was like. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's all right. It's all good. It's all good because clap is evidence of joy and the text says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The reality is, even in the moment of us clapping awkwardly and all that, it's all good. There's nothing wrong with that. What you got to realize is when Jesus hung on that cross, nobody was clapping for him. Everybody was clapping back at him. They were hurling insults at him. He took that shame. He took that ridicule. He took that embarrassment. He was crucified, and people literally believed he was a criminal, but he was innocent. But he was willing to take the guilt and the shame of our punishment on him so that you and I would be able to stand in the presence of God without guilt, without shame, being found blameless because his perfect righteousness covers us. The reality of what we see is that Jesus sympathizes with us. He knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to be ridiculed. He knows what it's like to speak truth with compassion and it's not popular and it's rejected. He knows what it's like for people to praise him in one moment and then persecute him in the next because he's speaking to their idols. He knows what it's like. He finished his race. So we must consider him who endured in sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And brothers and sisters, as Elias comes back out to lead us in a moment of contemplation and worship, what I want us to understand is the Lord is telling us today, don't give up. God will not give up on you. So don't give up on God, and you don't give up on you. You may be going through a hard season. You may be going through a time of doubt. You may be thinking, yeah, I believed this when I was younger, but I've had some very hurtful things happen. I've endured abuse. I've endured ridicule. People close to me have died. People that I look up to now no longer claim to be following Jesus. I get it. I've been there. I've seen it. I've been walking with the Lord for 24 years now. And people that I started out this race with, they're no longer with me. They're not. I grew up with a youth group of over 600 students in it, y'all. And the reality is, maybe 12 of them are still walking with Jesus today. I get it. I understand. That's why I share these moments. Because it's so rare, it's so rare for me to even see somebody that's been walking with Jesus since they were a teenager in their 40s. But that's a beautiful truth of the testimony of my own life. Is that I, good Lord willing, turn 40 this next, this, this July coming up. Is that it's only by the grace of God that he kept me. It's only by the grace of God that I'm still running my race all these years. When I said no to weed at 15 and 16 and no to sex in all those times. The reality is Satan is always throwing new temptations at me. Sometimes it's deeper struggles with depression. Sometimes it's Damon, take your life. Sometimes it's Damon, nobody loves you, bro. Nobody cares about you. Damon, you're going to be the next one to fall away. Then I have to get out of my head and back to the heart of God's word and say, no, I don't need to believe the lies of the world, the lies of the evil one, or even lies that Christians say about me. I need to go back to the word of God. And if I can do it, you can do it. You may not come from a household where parents love God or love you the way that you deserve to be loved according to God's design. But you know what? You're here. And you were invited to be here by a group of peers and leaders that do love you. They want God's best for you. They know the nuances of your story. And they still say, your life matters. God does have a plan for your life. 
This isn't some superficial stuff that's just a blanket statement for anyone and everyone. No, God has uniquely designed you the way that you are. He's gifted you. He's given you a mind that thinks uniquely. He's given you passions, relationships, networks, talents, and a calling. All that you would surrender to glorify him and make him known and run your race and finish strong. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. As strangers and exiles, brothers and sisters, I want you to know this. Even though every day that we live on this side of eternity, we're in a spiritual battle. The forces of darkness are coming after us. But here's what I want you to know. There will come a day that we just read about when you will take off the full armor of God, you will just be clothed in the robe of righteousness. So me and you being spiritual warriors, there's coming a day when the war is over. So here's what I want you to understand. Before you were a spiritual warrior, you were made a son or a daughter. You were made a son or a daughter to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So after the spiritual battle is done, the spiritual warrior will cease, but the son and daughter will remain. Throughout the rest of eternity, brother and sister, even if your parents didn't love you, if they abandoned you, if they divorced and broke your heart, listen, your father in heaven will never leave you, forsake you, abandon you, disappoint you, and stop loving you. Even if you come from a two-parent home, your parents still disappoint you. I disappoint my kids every day. Truth be told, I forgot to tell my 11-year-old I was leaving out of town. Just being honest with you. Got a text message from my Lola, and she's like, I didn't know you were going out of town. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I thought I told you. It's okay, Dad. And I'm like, you know what? I disappointed you again, Mija. I'm sorry. We were supposed to play Fortnite last night. That's our thing. So guess what? I let her down. She doesn't hate me, but I let her down. So I get it. Your parents are going to let you down. Your friends are going to let you down. Your family members will let you down. You're going to let your parents down. You're going to let your friends down. You're going to let your family members down. That's just a part of being human. But listen, rest assured that even in the midst of these tensions and consequences, when you embrace Christ as Savior, you're a son, you're a daughter, and God loves you. Even though you're a stranger and an exile to this world, you're a son and you're a daughter to your father. Please, I beg you, let that soak in your soul for every day that you live on this side of eternity to know that your Father loves you. You are a son and a daughter. Let's pray. Father, as strangers and exiles to this world, thank you that we are sons and daughters of your family. Thank you for adopting us. If there are any in this place who have never embraced Christ, Father, draw them allow them to have these meaningful conversations with their leaders, their volunteers, the adults, and their youth groups, so that, Father, they would be drawn to Christ and made a son or a daughter tonight. And for those of us that are sons and daughters, but we have weights that are weighing us down, taking our desire to read the word, desire to pray, desire to share the gospel, desire to engage in discipleship rhythms, even desire to go to church, Father, let us throw away those weights. Let us confess and cast off the sins that are snuggling themselves to us. May we cut them out of our lives. May we forsake every idol and turn our attention and affection to Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, as Elias leads us, Lord, let us be led to contemplate your goodness and beauty and truth. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.